right in front of him. Crowd are looking, throws it alley. Oh! Welcome in to the Just Basketball Show. Let's go. Brennan, I stole that from Locked on Suns because you said it the other day and I really liked it. I'm Chris Manning. That is Brendan Clean. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast platform of choice. Please subscribe. Hit the notification bell on YouTube as well. Jam-packed show today. We've got Kings Warriors, which just ended. We're going to react to that. We're going to give a little look ahead to Lakers Warriors, LeBron Steph. Looney and AD, all kinds of Titans thrown down in that second round series. We're talking about where Memphis goes from here. We're going to talk about Suns Nuggets game one, Knicks Heat game one, and we'll do a quick redraft at the end of the contenders now that we have the second round. We're going to draft every team in the second round based on what kind of contender we think they are. But Brendan, let's start with the game we just saw, Kings Warriors. Warriors win on the road in Sacramento. And to me, the story of this game is the third quarter. This is a very close game in the first half. This was highly competitive. Neither team was really backing down. Neither team seemed skittish by any stretch of the imagination. And then the Warriors, and you put this really well on on Twitter, came out and had a a classic Warriors third quarter. But it wasn't like the same way we've seen it for years. It was a little more patient. It was a little more calculated. It, it was a different variety. And, and the two guys at the head of that, Steph Curry, who had 50, had 50 freaking points. And Kevon Looney, who had 21 boards, 11 points. And and to me, if, if it, you know, Steph's the MVP of the series, I think Looney's got to be number two. But what a performance by the Warriors. They go on to get the Lakers. They are alive and well in the title race, Brendan. The Warriors, they, they haven't gone anywhere. Here we go. They have not gone anywhere. This is, uh, I guess the Warriors can win on the road, huh? Shocker, shocker, honestly. This actually, here's a It really is. Well, no, here's the theme of today's episode. And this is not going to surprise you based on some texts I sent you earlier. If there's a theme of this episode, Brendan, at least among two of these games, is that like maybe like we should trust like the veterans who still have, have, in Curry's case, like a ton left in the tank and other guys who have maybe a little less in the tank, but still something in there that they're probably going to be okay under the brightest lights possible. And they're like, we should probably just like not doubt them when they have the track record. Yeah. This one going in, I just had a bad feeling about Sacramento. To be honest, I had a bad feeling on in game six. So that obviously changed a lot of people's minds. That was the Kings winning on the road. That was the Kings winning in an elimination game, being young, having a great game plan of playing incredibly small after having guys like Alex Len in the rotation early Um, So definitely don't see any negative from the King standpoint. They ran into a bulldozer in the first round, the defending champions, a geographical rival, a team that has done this and been here a million times. And that's not easy to deal with. Um, I think we have to start with Curry though, because it is hard to sort of, wrap your mind and arms around how quickly this dude went from a little bit of half joking, half trolling, half real. I know that was three halves of, of can he kind of be that killer scoring creator in these types of games to absolutely. Yes. Unequivocally. There's no doubt about it. And it's in 
basically what five series for last season and now this one where it's like okay throw that stupid talking point completely off of the planet because the answer is yes 50 points in an elimination game 38 shot attempts honestly as far as the box score goes chris is kind of the thing that jumps out to me the most he just was like no i'm i'm going to be the offense tonight and they needed it because clay and wiggins were nine of 35 from the field and uh the curry minutes it looks like they won the curry the non-curry minutes by uh no they lost them by five points in this game again and so they needed every single bit of what he did and that's been the difference since they lost Durant, since clay got the injuries wiggins is great but inconsistent they need this offense from him and in the past two years he has shown like that's totally fine he's ready for it he is just this is this was already the case we we already knew this to be true this guy is pantheon this guy is one of the best to ever do it this guy evolves as he's gotten older i mean like this was not the type of performance we saw from him in like 2016 through 2019 this was like this is this to me brennan felt like the steph version of like an apex wing predator like hunting down his prey on switches he would get switches against like Keegan Murray or like another poor or Trey Lyles. And it's like zero chance those guys were staying in front of him for half a second. He's just in the lane, throwing up floaters, getting fouls, hitting threes. There's like nothing he couldn't do. And for all like of the Kings, like resilience in the first half in game six, it's like that felt like the thing that broke them to some degree. And it was like the Warriors were like leaving opportunities open. Like not only did you, did you, you hit on this, it's like, Clay didn't play great. Wiggins was kind of inconsistent. Like, you know, you're not getting offense from Draymond. Looney had, like, wasn't scoring. You know, like, it took five shots, right? They were missing free throws. Like, absolutely insane numbers of free throws. Like, Wiggins missed a bunch. Like, they were just leaving these openings on the board for the Kings to come back. And Curry's like, nah, like, I'm just, like, that's fine. The Warriors finished this game shooting 63.6% from the line. On 30 free throw attempts. The Kings were actually worse, 16 to 27, 59.3. That's that's absolutely killer in a game seven in, in any kind of big moment for you. But like the Kings had these opportunities where if like they're just a little better, a little just things go a little bit differently, like they're in this game, but it's like nah, they couldn't and Curry just absolutely stomp them. He just absolutely crushed them with fifty. It's funny you mentioned like the sort of him playing a little bit more like some of the traditional scoring monsters that we've seen throughout the history of the league because he really is a wing. I mean, right? He's he doesn't really play point guard. Their team is unique and he doesn't really have to. He can. I think he's a fine passer. He does create advantages and and kind of kick out if if he needs to, but that's not his game. What's really been impressive again over the past really two playoff runs, and this one is still ongoing, we'll see him continue to do this, is that he's playing more like uh, his old kind of role, right? Like, he's not just a shooter. He's now able to do a little bit more of like what we saw dating back all the way to Davidson and, and, and kind of really lean into almost a more traditional role with the ball in his hands because he's rounded out his skill set, added strength, adding added muscle, all that stuff to where now it's like that I guess is just his destiny to, to kind of have no weaknesses, but it's been awesome. Uh, on the loony note to return to your favorite player in the league, Chris, um, uh, is he, is he, I think he's on like, my I don't mean that as my... a sh- I don't mean that as a shot. 
Okay. I, don't I, mean thought, you're, in, I thought you were coming. For, I thought you were coming for no. me as like, hey, like stop loving Kevon Looney so much. And it's like, I look, I just, the boxing, his ability to just like box guys out and get rebounds without being like this elite athlete or elite jumper and just like know where to be and know how to like, hand, like Demonis Sabonis is like a pretty physical center, like a strong center. And it's just yeah. like, like he had, he had eight rebounds in this game. Looney had 21. Looney had, here's, here's a stat for you. Jared Allen had 13 rebounds over the last three games of Cavs Knicks. Kevon Looney had 21 in one game. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I posted, I, I tweeted that um, Looney and Mitchell Robinson should just have a, a rebounding contest during the All-Star game, All-Star weekend next February. And I was is not it, kidding. Is it just, I, I is it just, is it just me? Is it just me and you? Like they're just like only me and you? Just like only us. No, I think the I think the NBA fan base in general is falling for both of those guys. I think that would get a crowd there. Um, if I'm being honest, it's a lot better than what the slop they've thrown out the past few years anyway. So why not? Um, but kind of big picture on that to me with Looney's offensive rebounding being such a force. You're right that him and Sabonis. I mean, that was really sort of the key battle in the first handful of games in this series was how each coach tried to attack those two players as defenders and then how the refs called fouls between those two, a lot of loose ball fouls between those guys in this series. And then eventually sort of which one dominated the glass and dominated the interior the best. And Looney just sort of, it's like a, a long boxing match where by the end you just, it, no one knocked each other out, but you know who the winner is that sort of felt like this, this battle, but offensive rebounding has kind of been the story of the playoffs so far in a, in a weird way. Um, obviously there's been superstar performances, obviously people, you know, teams take a lot of threes these days and all, all those other things matter. But, you know, it, I think of Atlanta kind of stealing games in the play in. And then again, against Boston, when they were left for dead, the Clippers using that to their advantage to keep in the series with the Suns. I think Memphis not having Brooks, uh, not having Clark and Adams was a big reason why they couldn't keep pace with the Lakers, to be honest with you. And then this series, it felt like it was a really big deciding factor in both teams' wins. It wasn't just, you know, when Looney did it, the, the Warriors won. It was like there were a lot of Sabonis games where that mattered. I think the Kings are like top five in the playoffs and offensive rebounding rate uh, this year. And it, tonight it was the Warriors doing just enough more than them to, to finish the job off. So I thought that was really special. Um on the Kings side, it felt like to me, whatever pain or limitations Fox was feeling from the finger just kind of caught up to him. Yeah, and like he gets in foul trouble and that seemed to maybe get him out of rhythm. They had to take him out and then bring him back in kind of quickly when then they sense an opportunity. Like they had that point in the third where Steph sits and like it's like they kind of needed to close the gap there and they just couldn't. And like part of that is just probably Fox isn't 100% right. And it's like particularly in this series where like, you know, Sabonis has 22 in this game. It hasn't felt like a real Sabonis series to me. It has felt like his points have been a struggle. His his points have kind of been hard to come by at times. And like Fox is kind of like, it's like they need Fox and Monk to just make tons of shots. And my, Monk's 4-14, Fox is 5-19. And, and then you have Kevin Herter, 4-6 from 3. And this team, Bernie, you talked, you, you hit on this earlier in the series. Three-point shooting was going to be a real bellwether for the Kings. They were 25% in game seven. Like you're just not... Even though the Warriors like were thirty-two, that's not exactly like lighting the world on fire from three. You know, because Clay was two of ten, whatever. Steph was seven of eighteen. Like you are, 
you are not going to be in a position to like win a game seven at home against like anyone when you're shooting that poorly from three and you couple that with the free throw shooting and like Fox, you know, Fox in the head. They only gets the line four times, three, 10 from three, five and 19 from the field, two of nine on twos. It's bad. It's tough. There were games where Fox was maybe their best three point shooter and that can't happen. Um, I also think the Sabonis limitations that kind of showed up today uh, in this series, not just today, are connected to the three-point shooting becoming so important because that was what he was really relegated to was a table setter for their shooters in the dribble handoff game. And I think there's anything to worry about with Sabonis because I want to remind people, like, you know, Sabonis played 13 playoff games before this year, but he had never played more than 24 minutes a game in any of those. Like, this was his first real run as a top player on a good team and he's only 26. So I don't want to sit here and pick him apart and and shred him for a series where yes, he wasn't as good as he needed to be, but he was definitely not awful. And he was getting the crap beat out of him. He got stomped on. He got his eye hit. I know he's a pretty physical uh, aggressive dude too. I don't, you know, whatever. We don't need to get into that, but he wasn't awful. I think the thing you need to go forward with to me though, is he needs to be a more consistent threat as a role man. Um, I think that being able to play with the two of those guys, starting with the ball in Fox's hands instead of always Sabonis's hands in a handoff situation just makes them more dynamic. It's not that you go away from the handoffs. It's just the versatility, the ability to answer to different things, hit him with a short roll pass and have him spray out to shooters, have him catch and just score would be nice. You know, he's not an amazing athlete, but you would imagine he could add some of that to his game. He played with no spacing and not a lot of point guard talent for most of his career. This is going to be an adjustment for him. I think this was a learning opportunity, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you can't get around the fact that over the course of seven games, he was probably not one of the three or four best players in this series, and he needed to be. And it just felt like stylistically, like this was going to be a hard series for like the way the Warriors play defense against him. Like, you know, he's not hitting that little like midi jumper. Like that's going to be kind of a tough, like there's no release valve to some of what they did for him. And and they could have, if they, you know, if, I'd almost wondered if they would have welcomed them pressing him up more at the elbow, just to kind yes. of maybe make room for some of those DHOs, some of the quick back cuts. Like there's stuff that maybe kind of comes to pass. Um, but he this- felt so, he looked so uncomfortable taking those jumpers, which is weird because he started his career and that was a big part of his diet. And not that we all, we all knew that was not ideal, but just being so uncomfortable, even taking them did kind of surprise me. You'd feel like he would just, Oh yeah, this again, you know, and and that did not happen. But maybe it's a repetition thing. It's like not something it it feels like he's done a ton of this year. And it's like, when you go away from it and you do all this other stuff, it kind of leads you into this place. Um, The the other thing I think burning with the, with that I want to hit on with the warriors. Um, really leaned heavy on the starters today. And I feel like that's going to be a preview of, of as we go here. I wonder if they dial that back a little bit in game one, just because of the minutes totals and, and whatnot, just to kind of maybe like give everyone like a slight breather, but Curry, you know, Thompson plays 35, Curry's 38, Wiggins is 37, Looney's 31, Draymond played 38 back in the starting lineup. Kuminga and, and DiVincenzo basically only really, and some other guys really just kind of get garbage 10 minutes, but Payton's at 16, Poole's at 19, Moody's at 15. This is, I mean, this is, it's about the three guys really going on that last run plus Wiggins plus Looney. Like that, that's what this team kind of feels like right now, particularly, you know, Moody's ahead of DiVincenzo. Like 
Peyton had a really nice you know, closeout in this game to kind of to block a three, but like played pretty limited minutes, didn't do a ton. Like this yeah. pool pool started hit this series and you know had some moments this game, but played 19 minutes. This this team is gonna go as far as Curry and those guys take them, and like it just happened. I think part of the thing is today it just this was a day where Curry was so good that it was just like, oh, Clay had kind of like an off day. We we can survive that because of what he can do. And, and it kind of goes on and on down the list to me. Yeah, I'm more worried about just, you know, can those starters be great consistently? The minutes, I mean, we've seen a lot of teams already in, in these playoffs go much higher with their best players minutes-wise. So, you know, 35 for Clay, it's like, yeah, you know, he's coming off the injury, but that was a while ago, and 35 really isn't a lot of minutes. So... You know, 38 for Draymond and Steph. It's a game seven. I hear I hear you, though, on the fact that game one, the, the Lakers will be at a really nice advantage. They didn't have to even really sweat in game six of their series, and they have two, day, two days extra of rest, so we could see it play a role there. But, yeah, I mean, one of Wiggins and Thompson probably needs to step up going forward. You're not going to get lucky like that again. I think that's a good segue, Brennan, to look at that series that is the LA Lakers, the real Lakers of Los Angeles and the golden state warriors here. I, I think this series also starts with Curry. Who the heck are the, the can the Lakers have defend Steph Curry effectively in the series? No one actually can stop Steph Curry, right? That doesn't happen. But like you look at the two dominant historical NBA players in the coming into the series, it is LeBron James it is Stephen Curry. On the Warriors side, you have Wiggins and Draymond that I'm in that will spend a ton of time guarding LeBron. That is just what's going to happen. What I it's funny that like Le, like LeBron's like new like like uh the rivalry is now Dylan Brooks. He just got past it. I was old once back, but those guys are like friends now and they they're in the same agency. Funny how time just like heals heals stuff, but I don't suspect like we'll be seeing Dylan Brooks on the shop. Anytime soon. No, I don't think so. <laughs> don't think so. Would, would, would watch though, personally. Um, and then on the other side, it's like, okay, it's like, is, is Reeves going to draw Curry at first? Like, are you shrewder? Like, I don't like any of these options if I'm being entirely honest. Mm-hmm. And that, that leads me to just inherently favor Golden State coming into this series. Here's my question though. Did you like Herder or Fox or Terrence Davis against Curry? No. I mean, no, right? And like that that series still went seven games. So I think Curry is without a doubt in the echelon of you're never going to stop him. You got to do what you do great to to mitigate it. I think Schroeder probably is my favorite option. I don't think that they'll start him in game one. I think that would be an overreaction. But so you're probably right that it's Reeves in the, in the starting lineup um, initially. Maybe you have Draymond. Maybe you have Vanderbilt on Draymond, and then you can switch that. And you don't hate the idea of Vanderbilt on Curry either, but you don't want that to be your starting matchup. So that that's probably what they'll do. And then Schroeder in some of the other lineups, maybe Schroeder closes games if if he has success. So I think you're right. Um, trying to figure out how you match up with that somebody who can be small enough to chase screens, not foul, stay on the court offensively, so you can actually keep him there, which is the Vanderbilt issue. That all, I think you have to be thinking about. The, Le- the LeBron part to me, my biggest question there is, is he just pacing himself or is this what he is? 
Yep. And can the rest advantage help? Can the rest advantage of not only heading into game one, but having a generally easier first round series? LeBron didn't have to do a lot in the first round, even when the Lakers did have some tough games. Can that help? And again, is that was that him pacing himself or did he just get lucky that the team was good enough to get him across the finish line? And and then can he hit the gas now? I think that's what we're all kind of wondering. And I lean toward this is just what he is. Well, I, I think the key to this series for the Lakers is LeBron is going to need to be able to get downhill a ton and able to attack and, and hunt. And there are guys he can do that against. He can do that against Steph. He's done it in the past and he will do it again. He can do it against Poole. He can do it against basically anyone that isn't Draymond and, and Looney. Like he'll do it against Clay. Like especially this version of Clay. He will do it against Gary Payton the second. He will do it against Moses Moody. Like he will do it against everyone on this team that is not Draymond Green, is not Andrew Wiggins, and is not Kevon Looney. But if the burst isn't there, then this becomes like, is he just settling? Like, if it's jumper LeBron, then the Lakers, like, they're the, the, one of the best ways for them to manufacture good offense is just off the board. And that, that's just the reality. That That is just one of the problems that they're going to face inherently structurally in this series. That puts more pressure on AD. That puts more pressure on Reeves to just kind of keep pulling these, like, miraculous games out of his bag. And you need offense from Schroeder. Like, you need Vanderbilt to hit some shots on, on the edge. Um, it, like, if LeBron was healthy, like, I would, like, I think I would probably favor the Lakers in this series because of, like, some of the stuff he could do. But, like, that's just not where, it just doesn't feel like that's where we're at. Um, and it's, and look, and, like, in, a, in, a, in this, like, a basketball fan context, Brendan, that bums me out because, like, we're only going to get this, like, for all we know, this is the last time we see LeBron and Curry, like, play each other in the playoffs. So we don't know what the future is oh, going to hold. You got to think it's that, right? I mean, even if they make it again, the idea of them getting matched up, it felt unthinkable we would ever get it again before now. So, yeah, this is going to be a, 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 a big time marquee show. I know that Kings fans don't love to hear that. I know that maybe some basketball fans don't like that. I think the Kings are better than the Lakers, right? So in a lot of ways, the way the seating broke down just really screwed Sacramento over. But this is going to be a ratings bonanza. This is going to get the average fans' attention. This is going to be one that gets put into the history books in one way or another. Even if it's not close, it'll tell us something. And it'll be this sort of last duel between two people that not only are legends, but have a long history against one another. You mentioned it with LeBron and, and Draymond. And there's all sorts of things that are going to be kind of coming back up here. But to jump off of what you were talking about from a little bit of an X's and O standpoint there... The, the question, the way that I sort of am framing it in my head is which team's big lineup can score better in the half court? Mm. I have some numbers for you on this. You okay, ready? Hit, hit me. Yeah, let's go. Love All numbers. Right. Warriors half court offense with Looney on the court in the playoffs before today. Because today, you know, with his offensive rebounding, I'm sure it went a lot up. So I'm not trying to discount that, but I think that was a little bit of an outlier. So uh, before today, Warriors half court offense, Kevon Looney, on the court eight points worse than their usual mark in the playoffs. So him being out there sucked their offense dry. Jared Vanderbilt for the Lakers when he's on the court, which is also their starting lineup, also their big lineup that kind of helps AD not have to be a center in the same way that Looney helps Draymond not have to be a center. 
The Lakers half-court offense with Vanderbilt on the court is 14.2 points worse per 100 possessions. Um, so I think which one of the teams can make that work better is going to go a long way in determining who wins because I don't think either team has a consistent small lineup that they trust right now. Mm-mm. With the Warriors limitations, all the guys you just listed off who didn't even really get a, a real role in this game seven because they were unreliable. And on the Lakers side, you know, we know who the candidates are, but if it's Russell or Beasley, they're not going to be able to, to guard what the Warriors do. You could imagine them really being lost defensively a lot. And then Rui, I mean, he's a guy who was on a bad team until like three months ago and has never played meaningful basketball in his career outside of Tennessee or outside of Gonzaga. And uh, you don't know if he's going to make his threes still. You can't count on that to continue. So the small ball lineups are a big question. I think both teams would like to play big. It's just, can they score when they play big? And whichever one is able to most consistently, I think is going to have an upper hand in the series. To me, I lean the Warriors, especially with what we saw from Looney today. Well, the Looney thing versus AD is going to be really interesting because, like I like, I I love Sabonis, great player. When AD has played, and has been healthy this year, and particularly in these playoffs, he has been one of he has been the Lakers' best player. He has been he was the most dominant player in round one on both ends of the floor. He has Brennan this year first career. I'm looking at cleaning the glass right now. This would be the second best defensive rebounding rate of his entire career. 25% is like that. That's really high. That's really, really high. Good. And, and a good offensive rebounding rate as well. A little lower than the last couple years with the Lakers, but like, okay, whatever. Still pretty good. I don't really know if I think Looney's good. Like, Looney's going to get some rebounds that are just backbreaking and annoying and generate threes for Steph and Clay. Like, that is just going to happen. That is just, like, baked into what you're getting against the Warriors. Like, that, that, that is just something that is... It, this isn't fluke. This is, this is real. I don't know if Looney's going to have, like, the same exact, just, like, series kind of dominant rebounding thing against AD. I don't know if that's exactly in the cards. I And I... That doesn't mean I'm. That doesn't necessarily change my pick. That doesn't mean I'm like going against going, looking at Golden State as the favorite in the series because I think, particularly based on the LeBron stuff we talked about, I think I, I'm leading Golden State and probably in six is where I would end up. I just don't think it's going to be like this lopsided rebounding thing in the same way um, we saw with with that just because of AD. Like, just because of AD's presence in the middle. I mean, I don't even think it's just because of AD, right? Like, you could hear Mark Jackson, I think it was, on the broadcast today, or whoever, one of the guys. Yelling about the wings, yeah. Yeah, the fact that the the Kings play so small, too, that, you know, are you really, if you're relying on, like, they had a lineup out there at one point that was, like, uh, Herder at the four. Uh, At the beginning of the second quarter, they had Fox Monk, Terrence Davis, Kevin Herder, and Trey Lyles out there. And you're just asking for it. Looney wasn't on the court at that point. So, you know, that that matters. But that's what they were in game six. They played even smaller than that at times. Like the Lakers also have LeBron James to help with defensive rebounding and guys like Vanderbilt, Rui Hachimura, Austin Reeves is a pretty solid rebounder. Um, and so I think it it shouldn't be as much of a problem. But well, and, and to, you're totally to right some, that, that Davis to put, uh, is key. Just to put a number on that. The Lakers, according to the clean of the glass, uh, offensive rebounding rate as a team in the first round, 26.7%. That is a little bit above 
like average for for that round, uh, just kind of based on what we saw. That that um, the Russell Reeves James Vanderbilt Davis lineup, Brendan, has an offensive rebounding rate of thirty three point three percent. That is in the hundredth percentile of of lineups, and has a uh, the team as a whole has an offensive rebounding rate of twenty nine point eight percent. So like one of the Warriors' strengths against Sacramento, I just want it just feels like it's going to get cut off a little bit to me. Well, what was their defensive rebounding rate? Twenty six. Like what did they allow? Up? Oh, that was what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put, let me look okay. a little bit. Let me. I will. I will. Can you keep talking? And I will. I will tell you kind of what. Yeah, because I mean, I think the the offensive rebounding is going to be huge on both sides. But I think I just think the the Lakers are a better defensive rebounding team than Sacramento was too. Because Sacramento got on. They they got their own misses plenty, right? It was that they couldn't keep the Warriors off the glass when the Warriors missed and keep them off uh, getting from getting those offensive boards that really hit them. Um, but on the kind of possession game, that was my last note here on this series, which is. The Lakers were great, are great in transition from basically the trade deadline on. That that became a big part of their identity. Helping helps when you're an amazing defense, turning that into offense with their multiple ball handlers. Obviously, LeBron and Davis can be freight trains on the break. That all helped. And we know in the regular season and during this series with how much Sacramento was able to get a lot of offense in transition, that, that's a, a strength from the Warriors, especially when they're on the road. So the Lakers will be the road team in this series, but I could see the Lakers continuing what Sacramento was able to do by just heaping points on off of misses, off of turnovers, and keeping it even that way if their half-court offense isn't quite as good as, as the Warriors. I think this is a really close series. Like I was going through all the statistical stuff, Chris, to try to see where the advantages and edges might come from, and it's like everything that's a a warrior strength, the Lakers kind of have an answer statistically for it. Like it's just so balanced in that way. I wouldn't be surprised if we get a long series out of this one, provided the superstar players can be kept in check by the opposing defenses. All right. So what's your pick? I'll go, I can go first. I'm going to go warriors in seven. I think this extends far. I think there will be a couple of LeBron. There will be at least like one LeBron, just like utter dominance game. I think we'll get that. I think AD will. I think there's a chance like AD is like maybe the best player in the series, and they still just don't win just because some of the role player stuff doesn't go their way. Um, I'm so I'm gonna go Warriors in seven, but I think it's gonna be really close. All right, so I made this before the playoffs. We didn't do like a full whole like top to bottom predictions thing because it's kind of silly from the jump, but I did it myself just so I would have it to hold myself accountable before the playoffs. I had the Warriors and Lakers both winning in six. So I got the Lakers series right. I got the Warriors winning, but obviously took them seven games. And then I had Warriors over Lakers in five. Wow. So I'm going to hold okay. myself to it. I'm just going to, whatever I was thinking in that moment, I'm just going to, I'm going to stick with it. Um, they are the home team, which is probably part of what I was thinking there. And so winning it at home in game five, I think uh, we'll roll with it. I like I like the boldness. This can't gonna be a great creatures. West West Final Four is just all right. Let's go next to the team that the Lakers, the real Lakers of Los Angeles, eliminated. Brendan, that's the that's the Memphis Grizzlies. I, I want to start with what do you what do you think happens with Dylan Brooks? Out of, I believe he's out of contract. He'll hit free agency. Um, I'm gonna pull. I be, believe his yes, he's up. a free agent. yeah. He's, so he's a free agent. He's 28. Tim McMahon had had some stuff in this series about how he's like, I'm not sure they're going to they're gonna bring him back. Here, here's where I come down on this kind of ultimately. 
I understand that. I think there is like a use of trash talk, and I think like he is like a fun villain. It also just seems like he is like a straight up like distraction at this point. Yeah, like it is. It is out of hand at this point with him. Like I, I am for having guys with an edge. The team I cover primarily, the Cavs, like needs something with an edge. Um, and like they could use. I don't know if it's Dylan Brooks, but like they could use someone that could just give him a little like nasty, a little bit, a little bit of gruff. It just feels like we have like he has like jumped the shark on this character of what he is right now, yeah. and especially and it makes it even funnier too. It's like when he like gets fined for not doing media after that game. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hysterical, and like I I just don't know if you're them like if you would run it back with him. I I might I might be trying to more aggressively upgrade that wing position. Just say what you think. What do you, what would you do? You know would, what you're saying. I would let you would him move go. on. Yeah. Okay. It's done. It's not like that controversial. He played like complete shit. I mean, it's not even uh, uh, the distraction. You're absolutely right. He was one. And if you listen and watch, read whatever Zach Kleiman, their executive said in his opportunity to speak with the media on Sunday, he was saying, we'll kind of cross that bridge when we come to it. I don't really want to comment on all the nonsense that happened with Dylan right now, but reading between the lines, it wasn't exactly a strong defense of him yeah and when he you're kind of uh, admitted it well, was a di- it, here, it was a distraction here's the exact quote the on dylan brooks's future from michael cole i'll hit on db another day nothing i can comment on that is like i don't want to talk about this because like it's yeah. just not gonna like yeah and i i get it but the the biggest issue is he did not make any shots mm-hmm. you know i mean it's it's kind of that simple he was uh let's see here 8 of 20, no, 10 of 42 from three. He was 31% overall from the field, which means from two-point range, he was 14 of 35, which is horrific. 11 assists to seven turnovers, so he added nothing as a playmaker or ball mover, connector of any kind. And And the Grizzlies were outscored by 44 points when he was on the court in this series. Last year, they played 11 playoff games, obviously made it to the second round, they were plus 46 with Brooks on the court. He only shot 35% from three, but you take that over 24. And he had 30 assists, still 22 turnovers. So it's not like he's ever been that type of guy, but he was nowhere near as damaging. And you could convince yourself that he was more solid. He made his threes during the regular season. And I think that there was a hope that he was you know, kind of fixing his shot profile. He was making better decisions. And his defense was just as good as it had always been. None of that came true in the playoffs. And his defense really didn't seem to make that big of of an impact on the series. So I don't really know what the reason would be to keep him outside of he's an asset on your team and it would not be great to let him walk in unrestricted free agency. But that's, to me, not anywhere near a good enough reason to, to keep somebody who has, I mean, what did I just list off? Like half a dozen minuses? coming off of a, a really disappointing 2-7 upset? Like, what, is, there an, is there an argument to keep him? No. Like, all, like only if you, like, really couldn't get, like, the wing upgrade your team kind of clearly needs. And even then, it's just like, are we sure we can't just, like, patch something else together for a year and, like, punt this down the road? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great place to kind of go, but I, I think there's a part of it that you could probably, if you're Memphis, feel like, 
even if you let him go and didn't get a massive trade done, we've talked about Mikhail Bridges and what they reportedly offered for him, five first-round picks, and probably something similar for OG Ananobi would have been on the table if Toronto really ever sat at that table. But even if they don't do that, they have Zaire Williams, Jake LaRavia, John Conchar, who's not young anymore, um, David Roddy, who is sort of just like Dylan Brooks 2.0 in a lot of ways. Not as much of a ball handler, but they have all these guys. They've been drafting this spot for years, kind of planning for whatever the next iteration of their team might be. Dylan Brooks is also not like young like the rest of these dudes because he was old when he got out of college and he's been in the league a while. Yeah, I... I also just think like this team, like probably if they're like, I am again, pro shit talking and like rivalries. Like this makes the league good, right? Like they, they this, t- this feels like the year where maybe Memphis, like probably overall VCV Dylan Brooks, VCV, the John Moran stuff. Like when he's like, I need to improve my decision-making. I'm like, guess you do, sir. I, I understand what you're saying here. I understand what's going on in this conversation. Yeah, I, like um, this this team probably should just like stop trying to have smoke with everybody because they just want it with everybody. Like in the states back mm-hmm. to last year, too. Do you remember? Do you remember like Desmond Bain being like, "We're gonna run up in the wolves' trap"? Do you remember this? Uh, I do a little bit vaguely. I mean, they did. This is just. I know, but it's like you're just like, yeah, we're gonna. You came in our trap. Beat. Like I'm just like, how are you talking like this? Like, yeah. like what are we like, 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 like. Like you're taking this like a step like to into like just like cartoonish, and like Brooks is Brooks is like the guy at the spear of that. Like I'm sure like I know Jod talks a lot of shit. I know his dad talks a lot of shit, but like Brooks is at the head of that, and like I think that gets you in a position where it's just like maybe like you get someone else in there. Like honestly, like I know they traded him away, and like I I think the trade for Kennard was a good one. I just wonder if like having like a Danny Green type like in their locker room for a whole year would have like helped. You know, and like I know he was there a bunch, but it's like I feel like if they could just they should get like a, like a they need like a Udonis, they need like someone to come in maybe and just be like a vet for that group on top of some of the other stuff they're doing. And it seems like the reading Zach Climate's quotes is like, okay, do we need to triple down on youth? Do we or should we be pushing for something more aggressive? And I think the answer is probably something more aggressive, a little bit older that gets you kind of more towards where they want to go. Yeah, I hear you on on the. It definitely wouldn't have. You would hope things wouldn't have gotten so off the rails, including, you know, partying on the road and allowing the trash talk and sort of garbage stuff during games to overwhelm your your spirit so much if you had more veteran leadership around. Um, it doesn't look great the way that they sort of teased Andre Godala and, you know, showed how disdainful of that potential situation they were. And I know he chose to stay away, so it's not exactly the same, but um, they've, they've very much had this, like, we got this attitude. And so maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of humility with that would help. They lost the series because the Lakers are a better team and John Morant got hurt. And they didn't have Adams and Clark, right? So it's like, yeah, they didn't lose the series because of Dylan Brooks. They did not lose the series because of... Ja saying we got the we're fine in the West. They did not even really lose the series because Ja had to take eight games off to go deal with personal situations. They lost the series because they were the worst team and they did not have their personnel. And that seems to me to be the bigger kind of concern for them is do you feel like Desmond Bain, John Morant, and Jaron Jackson, their natural progression is setting you on a, a good enough course 
to improve and be able to get over the veteran Titan teams of the West. They've now lost, not only just lost, but they've lost to exactly the same type of team twice, which is the Warriors last year and the Lakers this year, two teams that had a more coherent identity, more veterans, and just better overall star power. The Grizzlies haven't had answers for that, and their half-court offense cannot score. Um, exactly yeah, where I was going to go. the have biggest you, thing. Have you looked at the numbers of their half-court offense in the playoffs this year? Uh, not not after the game six. Okay. So 85 well, points, uh, I, I feel like you're going to tell me something that's going to make me sad. So points per possession overall, 116.2. One, one that's uh, it's a little it's 0.4 better than last year when they were 115.8, right? How in the half court? They were at ninety three point four last year. They improved to ninety six point nine last year, which is still anemic. That's still just like not going to cut it for you. And seventy six percent of their plays came in the half court. Two years in a row now, and three if you want to go back to twenty 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 one, they have gotten dragged into running a ton of half court offense when the game slows down, and their half court offense then just cannot execute at the high, at, at the level it needs to execute at. Wait, I have an even worse number than that. What did you say? I have it as the 20th in the playoffs on cleaning the glass at 83.8. Oh, I'm looking at their, maybe this is, maybe this is like the regular season one. And like, I just assumed it was playoffs. I'm not sure, but, they, but yeah, they are behind the New York Knicks in half court offense <sighs> at 83.8. They've been the worst half court offensive team in the entire NBA um, in the playoffs this year. The fact that Luke oh, Kennard yeah, was you, so important was predictable. You but are also you, are, a, you you are you are correct. I want to apologize because you are correct, and I will just eat that out because I just assumed that that no, was like you're a good. playoff page and it was not. But that's eighty three point eight. That's really bad. And let's yeah, compare it's, it to it's Luke. horrible. And like Luke Kennard Last. is is good. I predicted he would be a pretty important player, but that can't be. That's not going to be your fifth starter going forward or anything like that. He's he's a bench guy. He's a useful piece. The same way that Malik Monk, the kind of you know the the magic ran out there. That there's just guys who are good at what they do and then get a little bit overextended. That's not going to be what Luke Kennard is. So, I think the question is, do you pay Desmond Bain the max and and just sort of deal with that and and lock him in because of your belief that he can continue to get better? I don't think he's a max player right now. He shot like forty two percent and had like a worse than two to one assist to turnover ratio in the playoffs. His game is not well rounded yet. He's pretty old already. But do you believe he can get better? And then do you feel like you need to make a, an even bigger trade on the wing like a, a, an Anunoby or something like that to get where you want to go? Because as much as they're still young, this is now three playoff exits. And there's only so much patience that I think ownership and people's jobs and all that stuff really have when you're three losses in. Wing trade, I think, is where you got to start. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what young guys you, you know, have the most value in the market. Um, like I like Roddy a lot. Like that's been a long-standing thing for me. Like you know, I know they like Kenneth Lofton as well. Like, but you, I think you got to make a Kenneth win Lofton play. in there. He is not an asset. I got. I hate to break it to you. Uh, the dude was the like on a two-way deal. I know, but I, okay. So it's like it'd be like uh, the, the tradable young guys like Roddy, Zaire Williams, Zaire Williams, who like didn't really play this year. Laravia, Laravia, a first-round pick, but he just had he dealt with injuries this year. Um, and not even just the young guys, right? Like I still think Brandon Clark would have some value. I mean, he's already expensive, so it's not like a blue well, just chip. the and the the Achilles um, is kind of a as a tough thing, depending on who you're trading with. Like maybe a team's willing to wait a year, but that that could be kind of tricky. Um, I I like I think Conchar could be useful to other teams that just are like, hey, like we'll take this like cheaper body back. He's not an unuseful basketball player. So like they have stuff and they have a ton of picks. 
Like they were going to offer five picks for Bridges. Like you could, you can't tell me they can't come up with like two or three for someone who's like maybe a step below that guy. I just don't know. The, yep. the tricky thing is, it's just like I don't know exactly who that player, who the right guy is. Like OG, I think would make a ton of sense, but is OG like Matt Mora talked about this? It's like is is OG like kind of like is he best served as like the defensive like floor setter or is he the like the ceiling raiser? Like which version of it? And if it comes to Memphis, he's the ceiling raiser. It's like, is he, it's like, is it, or do you need, like, do you need something else? Like, I wonder if you look for, for some other kind of thing, but like those guys are at a premium. Like, it's going to be hard to get the exact guy. So maybe just say, Hey, Toronto, like, do you need to reset right now? Like, can we three picks for OG? Great. Call it a day. Yeah. I really do just come back to Bane and Jaron and jaw getting better. I think they're good enough. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think Bane, I think Bane, but I'm saying like that would affect how I'm thinking about the wing trade. I'm not just saying like ignore that completely. I'm saying that's the both. that's the two sides of the coin. And I, I think where I would come down is rather than mortgaging everything to go get, you might, you might want to try to get, you know, something more consistent than Brooks or those young players. But I'm not saying ignore are it, they, but I, I mean, think are, they're, they're, they're going to go as far as those three take them. I don't feel like there's a trade out there outside of a, real blow it up trade that might include Desmond Bain or something that is going to substantially upgrade them. And I do feel like Bain continues to make strides. He had some really nice passes in this series. I think jaw, it's just hard to evaluate him this season period, let alone this playoffs with the injury. And Jaron is still incredibly young. And I think that if, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if he became the best offensive player on this team, it wouldn't blow me away. It could happen. Yeah. And, and it's like, I, are they the first team to call Sean Marks and be like, hey, well, we'd like Dorian Finney-Smith or, or something of that ilk? I think that's like a very reasonable path for them to go. Brennan, let's go to let's go to the team you cover mm-hmm. every day and in, in, in various places, but most primarily. That is the Phoenix Suns, who lost game one to the Denver Nuggets. And like, while I think Jamal Murray, how good he looked, deserves some praise. We'll talk about that. You know, they did Jokic heaping praise on him after the game. Can I? What did you make of the Suns' offense? Because I came away a little, a little, I both underwhelmed and feeling like they left food on the table. Like they, yeah. they would run these. You hit on this in your pod, and I like if I, in real time I was like wanted to like ask you, but I figured out, let's save it for the show that we're gonna do later in the day. Yeah, you, you, um, you're reading my tweets, you're listening to my podcast, and I, I don't know about any of it, so I appreciate the, the well, praise. Like, you, you gotta, you, you, you not hit like, you know, retweet. There's these yeah. ways to kind of juice my engagement I, for me, but well, I appreciate I'm, it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay off social. I was doing some packing for my upcoming move, and I was just like crushing locked on Suns, and then I crushed, uh, and then I watched the end of the Tottenham game and got very sad because that's my life. But, um, they ran these double drags with Aiton and and KD. And they are the laziest fucking double drags I think I've ever seen like a team run. Cause it's like KD is just it's just like it's just like a, a fancy it's just like a dressed up way to get KD like a mid range post up. And it's like, okay, like I think you need to do more. Like I think I need more out of like what this set is. And I understand it's KD. I understand like he might just make a bunch of those shots one game and they win. I'm just like looking for like a little more of like them running like some actual like serious offense for them in this series. And I think they're going to need to, to beat Denver who looked awesome. What do you mean by serious offense? Like run a double drag. That isn't just like, um, like give me an actual double drag action and like scare teams with something more than like the Katie midi. Like don't like get, you got to coax more threes out of Chris Paul. Like you have to, I need, I need Josh Okogie not to like drift into no man's land and then just 
take the threes or else just play Tory Craig or like I guess maybe try like maybe that's how this is like, becomes like the Landry Shamit thing because like you know he's at least going to shoot the threes like they just oh, need to have shoot. that's the problem but I, I yeah. let, let me let me respond to the serious offense thing um we just talked about the grid and I I agree with you let me say that off the top but there's a problem that's fundamental to what's going on with their team right now that I think is why they can't but we just talked about the Grizzlies half-court offensive rating, 84 or whatever it was per 100 possessions. I would imagine that an open KD mid-range jumper is a top 10 half-court offense in the NBA. I can tell you coaches are scared of it. Like, that's like the thing. It's like coaches well, definitely course, are like, like yeah. you got to yeah. be terrified of it. There's like yeah. three guys on the planet who can contest it. Um, one of them apparently is Russell Westbrook, as the first round showed us. But And it it it's a perfect playoff situation to put yourself in offensively because you're not as susceptible to to turning the ball over although he had seven but that wasn't in those situations and uh it slows the game down it kind of keeps your fingerprints and kind of control on the series all that stuff so i don't think i i hear you on on some of what they were running it wasn't as purposeful or decisive as maybe you would like it to be but they scored 30 points in the first quarter and i think that was their best stretch of offense that they had was when they were just aggressively stomping the nuggets with different versions of KD in space. To me, the reason that they can't run serious offense, and this is exactly what I was worried about heading into the series is in 2021, when they swept Denver, they swept Denver with Chris Paul and ball movement. They swept Denver because he dipped back into the point God fountain of youth one last time and manipulated their help ran multiple pick and rolls over and over. That was the best that the Suns' Chris Paul-led offense ever looked was against Denver because he had the threat of his mid-range jumper and the threat of passes to open shooters that they hadn't had no chance of contesting because his midi was drawing them in and that you just, you, there's no real way. We've seen him do it a million times. That's what happened. He can't do that anymore. And so a lot of people are talking about the math, right? Oh, the Suns have this big problem on their hands because they're not taking enough threes and Denver got hot. And that's the reason they lost. It is a big reason they lost. I think offensive rebounding was by Denver was another big reason they lost. And the sun's turning the ball over four quadrillion times in the third quarter was a problem. They reason they lost, but the best way to get Deandre Ayton going offensively, the best way to get the sun shooters going offensively, the best way to run what we think of as the sun's offense is to put the ball in Chris Paul's hands but he's not good enough against even a Denver Nuggets quality playoff defense with guys like Bruce Brown and Aaron Gordon playing really well to punish them. So their best answer is to have Durant going to work in isolation because the Nuggets can't guard that, right? But then on uh, the reason that they beat the Clippers is because Booker became what Chris Paul used to be. That's the best, that's the best way to solve what's what's clearly presenting problems for the Suns with all those turnovers and missed threes and not taking threes and awkwardness, but they kind of have these two offenses and neither one of them is perfect right now. And that's why they can't run serious offense. Like you're saying, because the best guy to do it is 38. That's troubling, but here's the thing. I'll, I'll turn it back to you by saying the more that I think about this game, I feel like the Suns lost because of those smaller things. They still scored fine. The fourth quarter was a wash. It kind of doesn't matter. The starters didn't even play the last five minutes, so the final score doesn't really tell you the whole story. 
They were they were close with the Nuggets until the middle of that fourth quarter when Murray went crazy. I think they lost the game because the Nuggets shooters got hot, including Gordon and other guys who you don't expect to make them. The Nuggets got a bunch of offensive rebounds and the Suns turned the ball over a lot. You just, the Nuggets to me, and this was the number one thing I had in my notes on this series. They right now give you less margin for error than any team in the NBA. We've watched all of the first round. First round is over. We saw all a bunch of different scenarios for all these teams. I feel comfortable saying Denver presents less margin for error than any team in the league right now. And the Suns made a bunch of errors. Where I, where I like, I, I one of the things that kind of creeped up for me coming from the Clippers years to this was just some of the, the, the poking the ball free from KD, poking the ball free from Book. I think those guys need to just are going to have to be a little more careful and just protective. Like all these positions are going to be really valuable. Like these are two of the best five teams in the half court in the playoffs so far. These are the two offenses I think like pound for pound I might fear the most just in terms of everything they can do. Even with some of the the warts on on the the sun side that we've we've talked about, and you I think have put really eloquently. Yeah. I also just like don't think this. I I just assume that like the Suns are just gonna like keep figuring stuff out. I just like trust in KD and Book and even Paul. Like just so much and like I, I felt like they I felt like even with the Murray stuff going off, I didn't feel like they were like overwhelmed by Murray or like confused by him like I think Okogi probably didn't do like the best job I thought Craig probably did better possession by possession which is kind of interesting it's not what I expected and maybe that means Craig's going to start game two maybe that's the direction to go and just say okay like this this clearly worked a little bit better than Okogi but like it it just felt like a game where like Denver just kind of like crystallized things a little bit cleaner got some of the turnovers Murray was great and the Suns are still just kind of figuring stuff out where the Nuggets like know exactly what they're going to be, know exactly how they're going to operate. And like they didn't need Jokic to like do everything for them here. Like Murray really kind of yeah. was like the catalyst of a lot of stuff. And like Bruce Brown, like just like like this is why you go get Bruce Brown as a as a free agent. This is like why you just like get competent like wing guys who can do a bunch of different little things for you that he absolutely was a big reason why that game tilted. Yeah, Bruce Brown to me was was humongous, uh, and he was the main guy knocking the ball away, like you mentioned. I do think that's a problem. I think another big problem for the Suns is if DeAndre Ayton's not going to be able to competently guard the pick and roll between Jokic and Murray, the series is over um, because the Nuggets are too smart and have too much to play off of from that base set to, to handle. Uh, you got to make them mix it up. You can't stop anything they do. But you definitely can't allow them to get comfortable running something as basic as a, a pick and roll. Like, you, come on! Like, you gotta, you gotta get the ball moving. You gotta get the ball out of the best player's hands. On and on. That that didn't happen. Um, I think Murray was awesome. I do think Murray is the type of player that you can't separate him from Jokic, right? And so there is part of me, and this is not a a knock on him, but it is just to say that you can't necessarily overreact to him. Because if you treat him as the primary threat on the team, the the reigning two-time back-to-back MVP is waiting there. That That's not going to work. So there's a little bit of you just have to continue to not give switches, not allow him to get into space, contest better, all that stuff, and just sort of pray. Uh, that's why that tandem is so special. There's not a, a great answer to solve against them, and they play off of each other so well. Uh, yeah. To wrap this up, I have a, uh, unless you have more thoughts, I have a, I have I, a the, list, the, I have another top five list for you. Okay, the only other thing I will say is that I know the Suns are like the mid-range god team. 23 threes just probably isn't going to be enough. And 23 was high because once the backup guys, the bench 
white flag group got in there, they were just jacking. So I think the Sun starters took like 20 or 15. Katie, uh, so Katie took three, Okogi took one, Aiden took zero, Paul took five, and Booker took one. So 10. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the issue. And, and yeah. Shamit and Lee didn't take enough when they were playing with the starters before the non-competitive part of the game. Um, like, like you said, Shamit being in there to take threes, that's not... Uh, <laughs> The history tells us that is not going to happen, even if it, in theory, um, is going to Landry, happen. Landry Shaman might be the captain of, like, the in-theory team. Yeah. He's gotten I traded, like, three times, and uh, unfortunately, every team that got him didn't love it. But, all right. This is my top five playoff narratives that don't actually matter to the outcomes of games. Update okay. it, because I did this once already. Yes, I remember this. So I have four, and then I we can we can hash out the fifth together because I couldn't come up with a great fifth, and I wanted to. Uh, my brain can only power these lists so much. This is just a really big lift, so I'm gonna need uh, I'm gonna need some help. All right, number one, Denver altitude. Oh yeah, that's that's a good one. Doesn't has anyone has no one ever run a won a road game in Denver or Utah before? Come on, silly. Michael Jordan won two championships against the Utah Jazz. It's not it's not impossible. Nuggets have never made the finals. If it was that big of an advantage, don't you think that would have happened at least once? All right, two, Madison Square Garden crowd. Oh, see, didn't I seem to matter that, today. Yeah, well, you know, you know who it did. But here's the thing, you know who it did matter for the Cleveland Cavaliers, who were freaking shook. Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel like the Cavs win that series against an equivalently talented and stylistically put together team that didn't play in New York City? I don't. No, but I also think like they wouldn't have looked as scared. The, I, yeah. I really, okay, yeah. you're, like, you're probably right, but I just think they probably lose in a similar fashion anyway. How much is the, is the crowd worth? Two points a game? One, three, five? I think like five. Five, yeah. See, well, this is our difference then, because I would put it at like one. I, which I just like doesn't decide many games. No, I just like I just having like seen what they've said about like the the moment and stuff. I'm just like it just feels like this really guy's got in your head. Yeah. No, I think I think you you saw it firsthand. So I'm not I'm not going to disagree yeah, and, with you on the well, cap well, side of well, it. Well, but well, Miami we'll just talk, beat them in game yeah, one. And like, so. Hey, and get, there's a former Cavalier who I annoy who we will talk about who did some stuff in that game. Then it's just like, huh. Huh. Yeah. All right, quickly through this. Anything involving Dylan Brooks versus LeBron James, we talked about. Number four, I have Jamal Murray in the bubble versus out of the bubble. Dude scored back-to-back 30 pieces in a playoff series against Portland the year before the bubble when he was like 24. So uh, the biggest thing to me is Jamal Murray is now fully recovered from an ACL tear, not that he's back to his bubble self. Like I, that, that is super goofy to me. Um, and then number five, I have the Kevin Love signing, which feels a little rude because he's been playing fine. But especially Bill Simmons brings it up on every single podcast he has, which I feel like keeps it in people's brains. <laughs> but I don't uh, I don't think that's why the Miami Heat are like on this tear. Um, so but that was the one I was a little bit sketchy on. Did you have a fifth option that's better than that? I mean, I, I kind of want the Warriors just won a road game seven. So can we just say like the Warriors have a road win problem? There we go. That's better. I like it. Like they just went in and won game seven in front of like the most raucous crowd of the entire NBA playoffs. And, you and they Steph did it Curry. in game five. Yeah. And you have Steph Curry saying light the beam at the end of game seven, just like sticking the stick in the stake in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That uh, that was debunked thoroughly and was over talked about. So perfect. All right. That's it. 
that was my son's nuggets thoughts. I appreciate you allowing me to vent about my team a little bit there. No, it's fine. It's like Brendan. I, I have, yeah, <laughs> we've done, the, we've done we'll, a lot of therapy for you. So I guess it's time for me. Yes. All right. Let's move on to Nick's heat game. One speaking of Madison square garden, speaking of the, the world's most famous arena. Look, I, <laughs> the heat are just so annoying to play with against another team. Right. Like that team just has to be, it's like they're down 10 kind of going away. It's like, okay, it looks like the Knicks are going to win this game. The heat are making threes. They're not as dangerous. And then it's like, okay, third quarter comes. Jimmy has some moments. Kyle Lowry's like coming off the bench playing a big 30 minutes. Three, six from three from Lowry, 18 points, six assists. Had four blocks. I don't know how it's possible that Kyle Lowry had four blocks, but he did. Kevin Love is like whipping outlet passes like three in a row on a dime. He's boxing out Mr. Robinson. A really incredible concept. This thing called boxing out in front of the rim and getting out and pulling down rebounds. <laughs> like Mitch Robinson still had five offensive rebounds in this game because he's just a monster, but it's like he had seven points. Like it didn't feel like he was like dominating and overwhelming the game. And the Heat win by seven. And that's on top of the fact that Jimmy Butler has this really gruesome-looking ankle injury. And, like, it almost seemed like that galvanized the Heat more than it did the Knicks, which yeah. is wild. Yeah, I think uh, Ryan Rosillo tweeted that from, like, eight, nine-minute stretch in this game when Jimmy was hurt, might not have been that long even, there were 12 possessions offensively for the Knicks and they didn't target Jimmy on any of them. When he in fact, they went, a, the dude was limping they, they, visibly. <laughs> in fact, and well, his ankle went so bad that Spose like looked away and was like, Oh, and then it also like, they went away from him. Like they used his man to screen, mm-hmm. like they screened and got a switch on a better defender. Yeah. Well, and then they were allowing him to basically like orchestrate the defense by just being like, Oh, they're, they're kind of like vaguely trying to get my guy that I'm guarding involved, but let me just send a different heat defender over to now be the guy guarding him who I was just guarding. And I'll switch over to this person who's not a threat. And then the Knicks were like, ah, crap, whatever. Guess we'll just do something different. Like it it was that pathetic. Like I do feel fine making fun of them. That is such an obvious adjustment. It's like playground rules fifth grade, you know, lunch recess where you're just like, that guy looks like he got hurt over there. Let's uh, try to make him run around a little bit and see what happens. Like it, it did feel so obvious, but I think on the heat side too, on the offensive end, Jimmy was good again, of course, but to me, that was really their ball movement and kind Mm -hmm. of relentless, like transitioning between options that stood out to me. They had 26 assists as a team, but four guys had four or more assists, including love on some of those outlet passes, including Gabe Vincent, who was amazing in this game and Lowry, who you mentioned uh, that, that really jumped out. It's like, okay, Bam is going to be the kind of conductor right now. Then, then Jimmy's going to have the ball in his hands and do his thing. All right. Jimmy's on the bench, which they had a really good second half stretch where Jimmy was on the bench and Lowry started to go to work. And it just, all of it was effective. Really once, I think Love kind of, the transition points they were able to get from that felt like when their offense clicked. And I know I made fun of you for giving Love too much credit over text, but I do agree. His, his 
those outlet passes kind of allowed them to maybe see the ball go through the hoop and get into a little bit of a rhythm. And then from there, it was like, all right, Lowry, bam, Jimmy, whoever it is, we're, we're going to make shots. And it was cool to watch because usually in the playoffs, you're, you're, you're sucked down to like, okay, who, who's getting the ball? And we're just going to pray that they can make a shot. And they were like, nah, we're going to keep doing our thing. First, I'm t- uh, this is the best coach team in the league by far. Just is. Spo is a god. They are never going to be out of series because of Spo. So they get beat. It's not going to be because of Eric Spolster and what kind of stuff he designs up and how he has them playing and the buy-in everyone seems to have. Let's hit on Kevin Love for a second. This, this Brendan, is like why you shouldn't just throw away older guys. This is why, like, hey, it's like I understand he, had, he, he was not good for a stretch in Cleveland. He, had, he was injured. He's a little older. This is like the prime example of like, okay, like someone knows how to use this guy. They used him to pull Mitchell Robinson out of the paint at times just as like a five, which I thought was really smart. They knew, like, they let him get healthy. They trusted that, like, if they needed him, he would go get there. And this guy just, like, knows how to play. He boxes out. He throws out left passes. He looks to create opportunities. He looks to create advantages. And he just never looks panicked. Kevin Love, like, at this point, has made more money, is married, is, more, like, has gone through this, like, whole mental health journey. He's all these other passions in life. He does not need to be doing this. And yet here he is being, like, provide creating infrastructure in a key playoff game for the Miami Heat. This isn't... This is exactly why you keep a guy like him around and hope that it works out. I'd rather hold on too long to someone like Kevin Love than not. Well, to your point on coaching, it's it's kind of the exact thing that great coaching and a creative, confident, well-instilled game plan can allow you to do. It's not just Kevin Love who's surviving out there. Like, somehow... The Heat won the Cody Zeller minutes by nine. Talk about guys who we did definitely did would not think would be in a playoff game. Cody Zeller is not even like, we thought he wasn't even a good regular season player. He was out there on the buyout market. And all of a sudden, I'm not saying he made a huge impact, but you shouldn't even be able to survive with him out there. There's a bunch of teams in the NBA that wouldn't even try him. You know what I mean? And suppose like, yeah, we'll put love, we'll put Zeller and, and we'll trust that we can kind of make it happen. I do feel like playing Milwaukee and New York teams who do play big has gone in their favor a little bit. Like, let's see against the Celtics if that happens, you know, what what the deal might be. But either way, in this round, in this game plan, it's it's working. Um, on the Knicks side, my last thought, I, I just want to put out there a little bit better why I think Jalen Brunson struggled in this game. He told, I think he told media that he was like terrible or something like that. Uh, Seven assists just to five turnovers, 0 of 7 from deep, 11 of 23 from the field, only four free throw attempts. Very uncharacteristic game. I feel like Miami just, whereas the Cavs tried to get the ball out of his hands, crowd him on the perimeter, and they made themselves vulnerable to ball movement, short roll playmaking, shooters getting hot, whatever. The Heat were like, let him get downhill. Not easily. They put their wings on him like the Cavs did at times, but let him run through the screen. But when he gets to the free throw line or into the paint, there's going to be five guys there. And he's not going to be able to comfortably get to his floater or his mid-range. He's not going to be able to kind of be patient and go with the flow and do this and that. He's going to be stonewalled. 
And I think that to me is the biggest reason that he wasn't able to get comfortable because that's really his bread and butter. It felt like Cleveland thought his bread and butter was like Damian Lillard pull up threes uh, or, you know, John Morant dunks over a crowd when he gets around a screen. Like that's not what Jalen Brunson wants to get to the mid range and, and hang out there and, and try to coax you into a mistake. And then the heat just said no to that. Yeah, I, I don't even like feel like I think differently about where this series is going because of this game. I like, you know, the Heat obviously got an important road win. We don't really, the Jimmy's injury and, and where that's going to go is kind of hangs over all of this now. Like, we just don't exactly know, like, how much he's, how much time he's going to miss and, and if it'll, what his status will be even for, for game two. I almost wonder if he just rests game two and we see him back for game three just for the sake of getting him rest and the Heat just kind of trudge along without him for a game considering they already got the, the key road win. But I think that would be smart. Honestly, yeah, there's no reason to make him hobble out there. And you would imagine once the swelling starts, it's going to be even harder for him to move. And he was already not moving great. I'm very curious to see what it, this, this is. This is the time where like Tibbs has to like do like there's got to be some kind of adjustment. We'll see if Randall plays or not. But he the, the Knicks are the one if there's one thing I hit in this already, but there's just not going to be the advantage of. Tibbs had a coaching advantage in round one. That's not going to happen here. And I and I wonder how much of a difference that's going to make and if that tilts things a certain way. Because the Knicks were like the better team for the first half, I felt like. And more energetic, making all these small little plays. And then the Heat just kind of hung around enough and then just kind of took over, even with... in Just again, like, I, I just baffled by the fact that the decoy Jimmy stuff, like, flummoxed the Knicks as much as it did. Agreed. You want to do a quick draft? Yeah, let's draft contenders. Let's draft the teams we have left in the playoffs, Brendan. So um, we didn't decide draft order or anything like that. I, I will let you go first, and we can just go back and forth, or do you want to do snake? No, back and forth. Back and forth. All right, I'm first. So Boston Celtics, this thing is is right there for them. The number one threat that they probably would have thought they would have struggled with heading in was Milwaukee, of course, that team blew up. We didn't even, the, the Milwaukee storyline came and went between rep episodes for us, Chris. We don't, we're not even going to get to talk about the Bucks collapse, but it happened. Now I don't want to underestimate the Knicks or the Heat, but, or the Sixers, but we know Joel Embiid is, is out uh, for game one probably. And that, that makes me feel pretty comfortable there. And that feels like a pretty smooth opportunity to get to the finals. if They can take care of business better than they did against Atlanta. So Boston Celtics, number one, They've obviously also been there before, and they're deeper than anyone that they might go up against. I'm going to go with the Golden State Warriors. Wow. I'm only doing... So here's the only reason why. I think the Nuggets and the Suns will be favorites against them, but the Warriors have a better chance. Like, I just feel like more confident in them getting to the conference finals than I do the Suns or the Nuggets based on just the matchup. So you think they match up well with the Nuggets and Suns? It's not even just that. It's just like, I just think like, I know that one, like if I pick the Suns here, then it's like they could lose this round. I'm just picking the team I think is going to at least have a better chance of getting there. I feel definitely better about the Warriors in the second round than any of the other three West teams. That's, so I hear that. That's, yeah, that's my entire logic here. It's not any deeper than that. Fair enough. All right. I have then at number three, the Denver Nuggets, who I think uh, is my favorite to come out of the West right now. I think that they, again, present the, the littlest margin of error of any team in the league at this current moment. They have the most reliable end of the floor, which is their offense of anything anyone else is doing. 
and two pretty darn unstoppable playoff scorers. So Denver is my pick. I'm going to go to the Suns next. I think that team is awesome. I think that team is going to figure stuff out. Don't know if they win that series, but I think if they do get out of the series, they'll be the favorite to get out of the West. And Devin Booker was the best player in the playoffs for the first round. Not, I feel good about that at four like that. And it's funny that we're doing this because like, obviously like the East was better all year and it's like, Oh, we, we just took three West teams in a row. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Actually. I I have, I did a, a ranking of for myself of what I would want to do here. And I have another West team next. Is that insane? No, because are you going to take you're Celtics gonna take the and then the whole West? Yeah, the Lakers are the last one left. That's my pick. I have him on my order Celtics and then all four West teams and then the remaining three East teams. <laughs> I don't think that's I don't think that's wrong. I think if you look at where the Embiid is hurt, you know he's going to be doubtful for Game One. We'll see if he plays. I know there's a video of him shooting threes at practice. They have a, obviously like have had historically like a lot of trouble against Boston. Yeah, and that would be the team you'd think of next. So I, I, I don't think you're wrong. Yep they they don't have wing defense to guard the Celtics' best guys. If Embiid's not healthy, the reason that that's so huge to me is that he, not only is their best player obviously for Philly, but he's also the number one reason you would think they have even a shot against Boston is that he would be so dominant against their limitations and their center rotation, and it doesn't feel like you can count on that right now. So I could see that series being short if Embiid is hampered. To be honest with you, so yeah, Lakers at five or six. Uh, five. I'm gonna go. Yep. I'm gonna go six. I'm gonna go six or six. Just, I think that's the next team. I had the Heat over the Sixers just because of the Embiid injury and the fact that we just saw the Heat take a game on the road. But you're splitting hairs. I think Miami, if Butler can at some point recover, and I saw there was a lot of talk online that he actually has had a lot of ankle sprains on the right leg in the past, and he has had times where he's missed no games. And I think the most that he's the longest that he's missed over the past little while has been like a week. So I feel pretty comfortable that he's not going to be like knocked on his butt here and, and can still make an impact. So I'll take Miami. I actually have them over Philly. Okay. Then I'll, I'll, I'll finish this up. I'll take the Knicks who could very obviously still very well in that series. But I think any of these teams are going to be a pretty massive underdogs uh, to the Celtics in the conference finals. That feels like who do you think heading. is the best matchup against Boston? Miami. Just because we've seen it before and the wing depth is there. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of hope we get that again because it would be the more fun option than the Knicks, I think. But the Celtics just have a... It's it's on a platter for them right now. It's, it's a title is staring them in the face if they can grasp their hands all the way around it. 100%. It is there. Like they will be the favorites in the in the finals, I think, if they get there. Yeah, because you think too. I mean, you know, if they if they can make short work of their opponent, then they're less likely to be tired, less likely to get injured, and these West, all of the series for the rest of the way for the West are just going to be absolute wars. I think, even if I mean, I said Warriors in five, almost a little bit unsure of myself, but even if it's five games, those aren't going to be easy. Those are there's four great teams left in the West. They're just going to beat each other up. One hundred. Percent. I uh, they sh- I I haven't looked at Bet MGM or you know the the betting partner just baseball, but I uh, I kind of feel like they got to be the favorite to the title right now. Like like it, there's no one in the East. I feel like would be kind of like they'll, they'll be those teams will be massive underdogs. 
out west, it's like in the blood you hit on it's the bloodbath part of it. What would be the most fun team to get the Celtics in the finals? Like, what would be the most fun finals matchup if it is Boston out of the East? Uh, I I think the Lakers or the Suns. The Lakers just because it would be another Lakers Celtics series, all that history, on and on. The Suns just, I mean, it is a rematch of the 1976 finals for anyone who really uh, has the history in their heads there. Um, that is the Gar Herd shot herd around the world for anyone who's a, a hoops history nerd, but it's also just, I think, the most kind of sparkly. We saw Warrior Celtics, so I think that would be fun too, but I don't really want to watch it again. I'd rather mix it up a little bit. Nugget Celtics would be such a clash of styles. That would be a very bizarre series. It could be fun too, but I would say yeah. Suns or Lakers. I kind of went to the Nuggets just because I think the bizarreness of the matchup could be a lot of fun. All right, we're going to end there. I'm Chris Manning. That is Brendan Clean. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast platform of choice if you're not already. Please subscribe on YouTube. Hit the notification bell if you have not already. Thanks again to Jake Stevens and Dylan Heiser for the production help. We'll be back at you this week with another episode after sometime after we get all these series a little bit more advanced. We'll see where they're going. We'll see what's up in a little tease. We have our first interview on the show coming up. Can't tell you who, but it's going to be cool. Where's a headband? That's the hint. That's the hint for the listeners. The, the player we're talking to wears a headband. Enjoy the hoops. Be well, everybody.